This is a podcast from Minute Media. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Shirley You Can't Be Serious podcast. Shirley fans, we are so happy to have you here with our first music episodes of the season number three. I know we are diving into two albums that turn 40 years old this year. And what is fantastic about this is that this first album throws back to two of our first albums that we ever covered, Michael Jackson's Thriller and Van Halen versus Van Hagar. The people out there who are listening right Right now who are like i don't really listen to toto or i don't not really familiar with toto yeah listen if you've ever heard this song you've listened to toto right that's steve lukather on the guitar not the eddie van halen part the other part right and then david page is on the keyboards jeff picard is on the drums steve picaro wrote human nature by michael jackson so we even talked about these guys when we did our first thriller episode and talked about how they were heavily involved with all of the music and i mentioned at that time i don't know that i could pick these guys out at a walmart and there's a great picture out there that our friend james buckley sent us with the line of Toto and it says the lineup of Toto looks like all the guys your mom dated after divorcing your dad. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so true, man. They are not pretty guys, but they are basically like the princes of music. And I don't mean prince. They, I mean like they are royalty of music. They've had music passed down to them through families. So it's neat to see these kind of ugly guys with these magical musical abilities and we're going to compare them to a bunch of pretty guys who really didn't even play music until somebody said, you know what, you guys should get together and make a band. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting because these are two sort of opposite approaches, right? You've got guys who play instruments really well and are not good looking and hate videos. Right, yeah. And then you've got pretty boys who love, I mean, that's how they made their mark on MTV was music videos. Yeah. But as ugly as these guys were, one of them was still Danny Rosanna Arquette. It's impressive. I have a feeling we're going to talk about Rosanna Arquette. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Before we get started. Yeah, go. Okay, so just right off the bat, the guys in Toto have been on over 5,000 albums. That's not an exaggeration. That's not a hyperbole. Literally over 5,000 albums. I heard a stat, and I don't know how you confirm this. It said 95% of the world's population has heard at least one performance by a member of Toto. Of the world. 95%? Of the world. That is crazy. Well, as we get into it, I mean, Jeff Picaro, one of the founding members of the band, they're very young when they start this band, and he still had been involved in over three dozen albums before they get going. Basically, if you listen to music between 1975 and 1995, you listen to Toto. Yeah, at least one of the members of Toto was on the album that you were listening to and all... All probability. These guys are A-list session musicians. Yeah. Let's dive into Lukather real quick, okay? Yeah. When he looks back on his career, I thought this was very interesting. Yep. He pulled up the top 100 albums of all time, Uh and he said he was amazed at how many he had played on. He didn't give a number. Yeah. But when he amazes himself, (laughs) pretty pretty incredible. Okay, so our story begins with one of the greatest guitarists of all time, Mr. Rhinestone Cowboy, Glenn Campbell. Like a rhinestone cowboy. Ah, 
So, did you ever watch the Smothers Brothers show? I have seen it. Okay. It's like, been a bit. It's yeah. been a bit. I, I listened to some of their comedy tapes when I was a kid. I remember seeing them on Laugh-In. Uh-huh. And they had their own comedy hour. And at some point, they had to be off that show for a little while. And Glenn Campbell was the guest host for them. Okay. Now, and I say greatest guitarist of all time. I mean, he literally is. He is an incredible, like, he can play the guitar, could play the guitar behind his head, can do all the licks that, whether you were rock, blues, jazz, he was phenomenal. Okay. But he did such a good job guest hosting the Smothers Brothers show that they said, hey, how about we just give you your own show? And his own show was called the Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour. <laughs> that show. sounds like a Branson show, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's there for all the pre-hee-haw folks, for sure. <laughs> so he, he has his own show, and he picks the same guy who did the musical direction for the Smothers Brothers show to do the musical direction for his show. Okay. A guy who's a big band icon, a guy named Marty Page. Page. Yes. Now, I sent you some music, and I sent it to our friend Pat from 30-something movie podcast. Pat Canigallo, uh-huh. Pat Canigallo is a huge jazz fan, and so I thought, this is big band stuff. He's going to know this guy. He didn't really make it clear whether he knew him, but he listened. He said, I've been listening to this all day. It's fantastic. If you like big band jazz music, you pull up Marty Page, and you're going to be happy for the rest of the day. He's got some fantastic music, and he's got some pretty cool album covers as well. The album covers? <laughs> were ahead of their time my gosh naked women on big band jazz <laughs> I, I go marty that's what i gotta say my personal favorite was the uh, the woman behind the shower door that was clearly naked but it was you know sort of opaque where you couldn't see it yeah it's it's it is good stuff <laughs> so marty page is the band director and music composer for the glenn campbell good time hour Okay. And one day, they don't have a percussionist. Their drummer is out for some reason or another. Right. And so they say, okay, well, who do we know? And there's a guy who's been in town for a few years. He's moved in from Connecticut, and his name is Joe Picaro. Okay. This sounds like the birth of a great band right here. <laughs> so Joe is a drummer, right? He's an Italian guy whose his grandparents immigrated over. They lived in the east part of the country, moved over to L.A. so that he could get involved with some of these big band shows, and has always been a drummer, right? Has three boys and a girl, raises those boys to be musicians, and he gets a call and says, hey, we need a drummer for the Glen Campbell Good Time Hour. He says, I'm coming over. See you in 10. Yeah. And so he becomes the drummer for that band, for Glenn Campbell's band. Yep. And as it turns out, Marty Page has a son named David. David Page. And David is a musical prodigy, and he has David come and sit in and play piano whenever the piano player is out. And so David, although he does play the piano, is very interested in the drums. And so he starts hitting up Joe and says, hey, can you teach me some stuff on the drums? And Joe's like, yeah, sure, of course. And he's like, so, you know, where do you go to high school? He's like, oh, I'm going to Grand High School. He's like, oh, my son. He's going, he's your same age. You should meet up with him. He's forming a band. His name is Jeff. And so David says, I'd love to meet him. And the next thing you know, history has changed forever. We talked about how interesting this is, right? So the idea that a famous dad and another famous dad get their sons together, it's kind of a unique situation. Yeah. But if there's ever a place in the entire world where this is going to happen, it's Los Angeles, California. Right. So these guys all went to Grant High School. They were born in... 
54, 55, 56, that area, the, all the members of Toto. Well, if you'll remember, there were some guys who were born in 53 and 55 that we talked about a few years ago who were in high school at the same time in Pasadena. These high schools are less than 30 minutes apart. Right. So Eddie Van Halen and Alex Van Halen are playing in Mammoth in high school in somebody's backyard. Right. At the same time that Jeff Bacuro and David Page are playing together in their band called Rural Still Life. There are people who probably went to high school in the 70s in California who saw both of these bands play before they were anything famous. Isn't that crazy? That's amazing. But, you know, just to kind of double down on that, in 1982, when Toto was recording Toto 4, yep. right next door in the studio, literally right next door, Van Halen's recording Diver Down. So Studio 1, Van Halen's recording Diver Down. Yes. Studio 2, Toto 4. Toto 4. So these guys are literally probably crossing paths and saying, hey, how are you doing? What's going on, man? <laughs> They're standing next to each other at the urinal going, hey, man, how you doing? You got a bump? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Hey, I, just another story about Eddie Van Halen. I thought this yeah. was really cool. Yeah. So Steve Lukather is another member of Toto, which we'll talk about here in a minute. As he is growing and becoming more well-known as a guitar player, mm-hmm. there's this particular guitar store in L.A. that he likes to go. And when he gets there, he always gets down the guitar, plays a little bit, puts on a show. And the manager of the guitar center is like, wow, this kid can really play. When right. he goes up to him, he says, hey, what's your name, kid? And he's like, my, my name is Steve Lukather. He's like, okay, Steve, there's another kid that comes in here and plays and he's really good too you guys ought to get to know each other that kid's name eddie van halen wow those two guys come together and make perhaps michael jackson's greatest song arguably arguably and then the other brothers are involved as well so jeff Picaro is the oldest brother. Yes. He's met up with David Page. They're playing together. Because their parents are both involved in music, they start doing studio sessions together. Jeff Picaro is one of the greatest drummers of all time. So this isn't just me saying this. I'm not a drummer. Okay. But all music, this is a quote. Jeff Picaro is arguably the most highly regarded studio drummer in rock from the mid-70s to the early 90s, and it is no exaggeration to say that the sound of mainstream pop rock drumming in the 1980s was, to a large extent, the sound of Jeff Picaro. That's fantastic. I mean, it's great. He, and like I said, he's like heir to the throne of his dad. Not that his dad was some huge musician. Now, Marty Page was a huge musician. I mean, he he was gigantic. He was an icon as far as big band stuff goes. And Joe was really just a session drummer, right? But he encouraged the boys in music. And the beautiful part is because he was involved with all of these musicians, they would say, hey, you know, can you teach my kid some drums? And, uh, yeah. And he would say, uh, sure. And they're like, well, what, did, what do you charge me? He goes, how about we just trade out? You teach my kid how to play piano. I'll teach your kid how to play drums. And so every one of Joe Picaro's kids got exposed to multiple musicians who were masters at their craft for free, like for drum lessons. That's insane. <laughs> That's insane. Hey, you know who else lived in kind of their same neighborhood area? No. John Williams. Oh, that's right. You know, John freaking Williams.
who also had a son their same age named Joe. And Joe later becomes the vocalist for Toto. Yeah. But before that, they knew him as like Crazy Joe. Like he's just like <laughs> another kid in the neighborhood, you know? Yeah, yeah. And they all just running around each other's houses. Yeah. It's insane. If you think about it now, I, like I said, John Williams is a big band guy too before he started hitting it big in music composing for movies. Right. But the youngest of these guys graduated in 75. Okay. 75 was the year that Jaws came out. Like... <laughs> Like, John Williams is not a household name until about the same time that these guys are forming their band together. So it's literally possible that some of the guys from Toto were in the living room going, can I have some juice while he's composing the Jaws theme? (laughs) (laughs) I guess so. I guess that's a possibility. (laughs) Okay, so we, we got Jeff, we got Dave. So let's talk about a couple of the other guys. Okay. We got Steve Lukather, and we've got Steve Picaros, Jeff's younger brother. These guys were in the same class together as well, and they were friends. Yeah, they're but they were years. like younger brothers. Like. Yeah. So the what happens when David and Jeff graduate is they go and they start being studio musicians. They start touring with some bands, and the younger brother and his buddy Luke. Yeah. is what they call Lukather. They take over the band and it changes the name from Rural Still Life to just Still Life. Right. And so these guys are the new high school band. Steve Picaro, <laughs> who plays the keyboards, and Lukather, who plays the guitar, right? Right. And so they're carrying on the tradition. They're another prince along the way. And so the older brothers come back, you know, and listen to them play. And they're like, hey, they're actually doing a pretty good job. These guys are pretty good. And in fact, they would come back and play the occasional prom with them, right? Right. Imagine a prom <laughs> where you've got David Page, Steve Lukather, and the two Pecora brothers. Yeah. And they're playing, you know, whatever, the, the sophomore prom. <laughs> right. <laughs> so let's dive into Lukather real quick, okay? Yeah. I love this story. He auditioned when he was in high school. He's like 17. Uh-huh. Frank Zappa was looking for a guitarist. Okay. And like anybody worth anything in the guitar world at that time in that area was like, heck yeah, I want to be in the, the Frank Zappa band. Sure. So he shows up, and he's just a kid, just a young kid. He's a pretty good guitarist. But they get there. Frank walks in the room. He's got this real sort of big personality, imposing character. And he looks around, and he finds the mousiest kid in the room. Lukather's in the back, just trying to hide, just trying to take it all in. Right. He's like, you, up here. You first. So Lukather's like, oh, okay. So he goes up. Frank Zappa's like, see this sheet music? You know how to play sheet music? Play this. And Lukather said it looked like somebody had wiped their butt. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was so black with notes that he was like, what is this, you know? So he fumbles around, and it's it's bad, right? Uh-huh. It's right. bad. Yeah. And Zappa's like, all right, forget it, forget it. Just follow me on this. And Zappa would play a whole bunch, and, he, and he's just trying to keep up. And Zappa's like, that's it. You suck. Get the hell out of here. <laughs> oh, gosh. And so Steve Vai is... I guess in the same room, and oh Steve Vai gosh. was in Frank Zappa's band later, uh-huh. and he said that that was a, a practice by Zappa. He didn't want to listen to a 150 guitarist audition, so he wanted to humiliate one, oh, no. scare off 80%, oh. and then get down to business. And Lukather was the guy. Lukather was the guy, like, the, he said he went <laughs> home and just cried. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, that's devastating. Well, at least he didn't quit. I, I could, I mean, if that happened to me, I'd be like, forget it. I'm just going to quit. I'll go be an attorney. Looks or like something. Walmart. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we've talked Jeff, talked Dave, talked Luke. Let's talk Steve Picaro. Okay. Right? Yep. So Paige already plays keyboards and he's good. I mean, yep. he's 
freaking phenomenal good. Arranges everything. I mean, th- he's a genius. He comes from musical geniusry, and he is a genius himself. Geniusry? Geniusry. That's, <laughs> that's a word that I'm okay. making up right now. I'm with now. you. Keep going. Okay. But Steve is not as proficient at playing, but he is an expert technician. Okay. So when he was a little kid, his dad, Joe, buys him a Ream organ. Now, have you heard of the brand Ream? Air conditioners. The air conditioners, yes. Not musical instruments. Wow, okay. So he's like, thanks, dad. <laughs> uh, just a little while later, he convinces his dad to, to go with him to the music center and he's like, I'd really like to trade out this Ream organ as much as I appreciate your gift yeah. for a Farfisa organ. And this is an organ that like Pink Floyd is used and Blondie and he's like that and maybe this Leslie preamp over here. And that's like, okay, sure. Right. That was his first rig was were those instruments. But he was fascinated by how to manipulate the sound on these new synthesizer style organs. And so he became basically a music tech nerd. And so he didn't have to be phenomenal as a piano player. He was just the guy who could find that perfect sound and create it on the synthesizer. Wow, that's great. Yeah. And once you listen to Africa and you hear those marimbas that are coming out of a synthesizer, you're like, holy crap, this guy is... Phenomenal. And that's way that's the way he made his name really, other than the band, obviously, is he's the guy who knew how to program like the way he said it was, you know those things on the back of the keyboard, the ports that everybody's like, I wonder what those are for. Yeah. I knew what those were for. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I learned it. I learned what those things are for. So he became the guy who could make the sound. Okay. I did hear that he would do certain keyboard solos. Yeah. That would take three weeks to uh, perfect. Right. And the guys were like, God dang, this is taking forever. Uh huh. And they started to say, maybe we don't give him as many solos. Cause... <laughs> so I thought that was funny. A little bit of a perfectionist. I could tell you, I mean, looking at him now, he's this older man, gray hair, very reserved looking guy. He's always in his studio where he now is writing, composing music for TV shows and other stuff like that that but you watch in the old like live performances from the early 80s and he's got on like the michael jackson v cut but even gaudier (laughs) and it doesn't quite fit right and you can see his belly button and he's throwing himself around and he's got long hair and still the big thick coke bottle glasses it's uh it's very 80s it's a style style. yeah Yeah, it's it's neat to see him now i I can't say anything because if you go back to my 80s pictures you're going to see a mullet (laughs) well you know steve picaro wrote all the music for Justified. Yeah, won the Grammy for it or an Oscar, I think. I mean, he, he won for Best Musical Composition in a TV series. That's a fantastic show. Tony, maybe? I don't know. What you, what do you, whatever you get for TV shows. By the way, he got that show because they had a great relationship with another guy that we've talked about named James Newton Howard. Remember James Newton Howard? He was the one who composed with Hans Zimmer on the Batman Begins and the Dark Knight soundtracks. He was a big producer. He was involved with all these session shows. He's involved in the album we're talking about today. He's a big producer at the time, but they stayed friends. And, you know, we're talking about Justified, which came out, what, 2010? Yeah, so yeah, 12 years ago. He's been working with James Newton Howard on doing these scores, and James is like, hey, do you want to just do this, you know? And he's like, I don't really know that I could do I, I mean, I don't like deadlines. I don't, you know, you have to have this done by Thursday. I don't like that. Right. He goes, well, let's try it anyway. And so he got, like, the guys from Justified are coming to James Newton Howard, and they're like, hey, we want you to compose for the show. And he says, okay, I'll tell you what. I will compose the opening theme if you let Steve compose all of the other music for the rest of the show. And they're like, okay. Done. 
Yeah. And so then it becomes, now he's got to do it. He's got to have the music in by Thursday. And he goes, I learned that I work better with a deadline. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's good. Here's my James Newton Howard story. Go. Okay. So James Newton Howard worked with Lukather later when Lukather got involved in these sessions. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. And so he had this 17-year-old prodigy in the studio. So he brings Lukather in. And he's like, okay, we're going to record some of your guitar. Mm-hmm. This is my production assistant. He's going to take care of you. Some, some sort of musical genius, right? Yeah, he's a musical genius. He's a prodigy. The kid doesn't speak. Dead shy, won't speak. Lukather said he never even addressed me. Okay? So he knew what he was supposed to play. He goes in there. He gets the nod from the kid, Mm -hmm. the 17-year-old. And when the kid gives him the nod, he sort of shrinks back behind the counter where you can't see him. Uh And Lukather starts to play. And when when he gets after it, he really gets after it. Oh, yeah. And he said that I was wailing away on this guitar. And all of a sudden, this little head pops up from behind the counter. (laughs) Like... What is going on in there? And then would slowly lower back down. And he's like, it was the weirdest thing. That kid? Yeah. Prince. Oh, my God. <laughs> How about wow. that? Holy cow. That's amazing. Ah, fantastic story. <laughs> okay. So now we've got Lukather. We've got Steve Picaro. We've got Jeff Picaro. We've got David Page. Jeff Picaro and David Page had played on a Steely Dan record. Yeah. You get your name attached to Steely Dan, that was sort of like, these guys are really good. Yeah. And so it sort of made a name for them, right? Mm -hmm. And they played with Sonny and Cher. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And the funny thing is, is that Lukather's dad was involved in like television production. Yep. And so they had shot a movie with Sonny and Cher, Mm -hmm. and Cher kind of doted on this little boy, Steve Lukather. Who then later, when he grows up, plays on If I Could Turn Back Time and all these other share hits. If I could turn back time, if I could find yeah, Jeff, when he was 17, that was his first professional gig, was playing with Sonny and Cher as, on their touring band. And by the way, this is just a total sidebar here. He, at that time, called Jim Keltner and Jim Gordon his idols as far as drumming was concerned, right? Okay. So Jim Gordon, not the commissioner from Batman. (laughs) Commissioner Gordon? But a very proficient drummer. At the time that Toto 4 is hitting big, June 1983, Gordon attacks his 72-year-old mother with a hammer and then stabs her to death with a butcher knife. What? He claims that a voice told him to kill her. It's only after he is arrested that they realize he has got severe schizophrenia he has been in prison since that time refuses to go to his parole hearings he's right now in basically a mental facility for prisoners whoa this was one of jeff picaro's idols as far as the drums were concerned (laughs) wow that crazy that is crazy so during his 20s picaro plays on hundreds of albums including like you said steely dan and i looked at the list and i counted over three dozen albums that he was involved with before toto debut album comes out over three dozen he's what 19 20 yeah it's nuts yeah. Well, here's the interesting thing about that. So Toto has got, we got two keyboardists. Yeah. But we pick up David Hungate through the Boz Skaggs tour that we did. Yep. So we've got him. We've got the best drummer in the entire world. Yep. We've got Steve Lukather, who's guitar legend. Yep. Now we need a singer. Yep. So who do they go to? Michael McDonald. <laughs> right. Right? Right. 
Think about this. Michael McDonald says, oh man, guys, I just joined the Doobie Brothers. Yeah. Like, you just missed me. Oh my God. If you'd asked me last week, I probably could have done it. <laughs> that's that's amazing. A week's time, and we might have had Mike McDonald singing Africa. And Sweet Freedom. I mean, Toto's <laughs> version of Sweet Freedom. But the interesting thing, so he goes on to do the Doobie Brothers, but think about what could have been. Well, the and, what ifs there. And Michael McDonald has this fantastic story about he when he was he's walking out of the studio and he sees this guy come up to him and he's like thinking it's a homeless man. Like he's <laughs> he's rough looking. And he's you know trying to make his way to his car back into the studio and this guy's like, Hey, hey, hey Michael, Michael, I, I got this I got this idea for somewhere over the rainbow with you singing in the lead on it and, and he's like okay alright yeah 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 sounds good sounds good and rushes into the studio right. and when he gets in somebody's like hey did Marty Page see you he was out there trying to find you <laughs> So he, he's like, I literally ran away from the best string and brass arranger in the world because I thought he was a homeless man. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. So if you look at Mike McDonald's debut album, these guys are on it. Yeah. And Marty Page is on it. Well, and one of their best known songs in the 80s, I'll Be Over You, yes. huge hit. Yeah. Uh, Michael McDonald's singing backup vocals on that. He's in the video too, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So we got... Basically now, one more guy to talk about in the band, Mr. Bobby Kimball. Mr. Bobby Kimball. Lived in Louisiana, but was born in Texas because they didn't have a hospital in Louisiana where he's lived. I know our, our buddy James Buckley is very proud of this guy's uh, <laughs> from Cajun country. So Bobby Kimball. Yep. So when Bobby is four and a half years old, he watches his mom and realizes, I mean, he doesn't know what it is at the time, but she's got perfect pitch. She can listen to a song on the radio, walk over to the piano, and play it all note for note. Whoa. And so... He just watches her and watches her. Four-and-a-half-year-old little kid is just fascinated by her ability to do this. And finally, she's like, hey, come over here. I'll teach you how to do some stuff. So from four-and-a-half to five years old, she teaches him 300 chords. So at five years old, this Bobby Kimball knows 300 chords. Uh-huh. And then he's he's like at a barbershop. And he sees this guy. He's in Louisiana, you know. He's an old black guy out there shining shoes. And he's listening to the guy shining shoes. And he's listening to the pop of the rag. He's like, shh, pop, shh, pop, shh, pop. And the guy's like humming a tune as he's doing this. And again, five years old, fascinated, walks out. And he says, well, what are you doing with that pop? And he goes, well, that's rhythm. And he says, at that moment, I learned what rhythm was. So I had the chords. I had had the rhythm and it was at that point that I started writing my own music five years old wow yeah that's incredible I saw an interview with Bobby Kimball yeah He's got this big personality, right? And he's uh, kind of a loud guy, you know, and he yeah. was very center of attention. Right. And when I listened to him with that that sort of, uh, I don't know if it's a Creole accent, but... He's got a weird accent because his, his family's from German. Like, he's a quarter German, and he went out there and lived for a while. So, like, when I hear him, I can't place the accent. I mean, it sounds a little German, a little Creole. I mean, it's weird. Here's what he sounds like to me. He sounds like a televangelist. <laughs> He's got that bombastic personality, yeah. and he's got this funky accent. But yeah. That is fantastic. <laughs> so when he graduates from college, he moves from L.A. to L.A. He goes from Louisiana to Los Angeles. Yep. And he meets up with the guys from Three Dog Night. Mm -hmm. And they decide to form a new band called SS Fools. They record an album with CBS Records, which promptly does nothing. Right. Fails. Year and a half later, band is done washed up so what's Bobby Kimball going to do well as it happens there's a couple of guys looking for a singer in a band so you mentioned a couple of keyboards 
fantastic drum, you got bass, you got all kinds of lead singing possibilities because not only can Bobby sing, but David sings and Steve Lukather sings. The other guys don't really sing so much. They're a little bit and they're, they'll do some backing vocals, but it's mostly those three guys. And then they also, because they're so familiar with all these other studio musicians, they're also bringing in all kinds of other instruments, one of which is Lenny Castro, which is, he's been on every single album that they've ever done, I think, except for one. And he's a world-renowned Congo player. You can't miss him on Africa. He's in the Africa video. Yeah. By the way, so just to touch on that. So David Page is kind of the architect of the band. Yeah. Jeff Picaro is the leader. So you and I were talking and we were like, wow, this is interesting because they kind of have like three lead vocalists, right? Right. David Page sings Africa. Yeah. Bobby Kimball sings the the high chorus that we all know. Right. Lukather sings on several songs. Rosanna. He's singing the first part of Rosanna and Bobby Kimball singing the higher part. When it sounds like two people are singing. It is. Two people are singing. Yeah. But we found that interesting. Well, it turns out they modeled themselves after the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac. Right. Who both, both bands have multiple Multiple singers. singers and multiple songwriters. Right. And their recording is based upon what they learned by the Beatles recording. I mean, this, you want to talk about a produced album. This is a polished produced album, yep. as are almost all of their albums. And they got, I mean, say what you will about production. I feel like it's kind of like... I love it. I don't care what anybody says about it. I know. I know. They... I think I can I can identify with those folks who go, well, too produced. And I can also identify with those folks who are like, did you guys do any production at all? Right. It sounds like you're in somebody's garage. Right. So it's like a speedometer, right? You go too far one way and it's not really so good. You go too far the other way. It's really not so good. You need it kind of somewhere in the middle, right? You need a little bit of a rough sound for certain music and you need a polished sound for others. If you say so. Yeah, that's, that's, that's where I am on that. But anyway, so they modeled their production style after the Beatles, which again, also had multiple lead singers. Yeah. Every single one of those guys actually were just... Uh, yep. Ringo... He sang, yeah. I mean, he, he Yellow sang. Submarine, right? He sang. The Beatles did so many drugs, they even let Ringo sing. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard with a little help from my friends. So, is this the point that we talk about how they came up with the name Toto? I think so. Let's do that. Okay. Do you know? Because yes. I don't. I've heard like four different stories. So, there are four different stories, depending yeah. on who's telling the story. Right. So I've heard that Toto means like all-encompassing, like yep. all types of music. Yep. I've heard that they got stoned watching The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> I tend to believe the stoned Wizard of Oz story. Well, if you listen to Bobby Kimball tell the story, even now it is David and Jeff were talking about all of how to put the band together and the and the TV's on while they're talking about how to put the band together. Now, we know that these guys did a lot of drugs. I mean, you're with musicians. That's what's going to happen. I don't know whether they're on drugs while Wizard of Oz was going on or not, but hey, if you're going to watch the Wizard of Oz as an adult, you probably should be on drugs. <laughs> um, no, but... Uh, and so then the, the once they get done with who do we want to be in the band, then and they're like, hey, what what should we call the band? And yeah, they see somebody yelling, Toto, Toto, come back. And that's where they come up with Toto. From bands at the time, like Kiss, I mean, the, it's an easy word. It's easy to remember. Yeah. It stands out from the crowd. I get it. And so the other potentially urban myth that's out there, we've got Latin, you know, in Toto means all-encompassing, which that's the type of band that come from all different genres, all different styles. Then you've got the Toto from Wizard of Oz. And then there was this idea that they wanted to be overprotective of their music. And so Jeff would write Toto on every one of their cassettes 
just as a, I mean, T-O, T-O, just that, just kind of random letters thrown together to go, this is ours, don't touch it. And once they got all of their cassettes together and had to put together a band, they were like, well, let's just call it Toto. I mean, that's good. Works for us. Okay. Makes sense. So I don't know which of those stories is true. Don't care. I like that there are multiple stories. As we do this, we find out that time can change a lot of what history is. There's about four different versions on how Rosanna, the song, got its title, too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, and the writing of Africa and all I mean, our whole catalog of episodes, we've heard multiple stories <laughs> on how things happen. That's right. So, don't, don't kill the messenger. Exactly. I find it interesting that Columbia offered them a record deal without hearing a single note. Well, their demo was three dozen other songs that they had been involved Makes in, Makes sense, right? right? We know what you guys can do. You guys are forming a band. We want in. Sounds good. For okay. a record deal. Interestingly, when they formed Toto, it's a six-way split. I found this fascinating. Okay. Even though Jeff Picaro is the leader, David Page is the architect, six-way splits, real band, they were encouraged to bring guys in as hired hands. They're like, nope, we are a band. Right. Okay. So it's 1977. Yep. Steve Picaro is asked to join up with Gary Wright because they're about to do their Dreamweaver tour. Wait, 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 wait. Dreamweaver. <laughs> that one? That's the one. You can see how his keyboard skills would come in great for that particular song. Such a good one, man. All right. And then they all get together and they form Toto and we have the release of the very first Toto album, Toto. Let's talk about Hold the Line for a second. David Page came to the band. And he's like, hey, I think I've got something cool. And it starts off with that real heavy piano. Yeah. But it's a rocker. Yeah. Luther adds that crunchy guitar. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the great songs of the 70s. It's not in the way you look or the things that you say that you do. Hold the line. Love isn't always on time. Oh, Absolutely. I love this song. So when they when they were putting it together, they started laying down the parts of it, mm-hmm. and it came time for Lukather to play the guitar solo for this yeah. one, right? Yeah. And they knew they had a hit, right? And so they're like, listen, this is a great song. And they go to Lukather, they're like, dude, you really got to come with it, because this is the one that's going to put us on the map. Uh-huh. And so Lukather's like, oh, okay, no pressure, right? right? And so he goes in, and here comes his guitar solo, and by the end of it, they're in the control room, jumping up and down. Lukather is such a master, of course. I mean, it, and to, to have them go, it's all <laughs> it's all depending upon you, and then deliver to the point that those guys are jumping up and down. That's fantastic. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. The way he does it, he says, if the solo doesn't come to me in like the first or second try, I'm going to just quit for a little while and come back to it later. If it doesn't come, he, then you're just not feeling the music the way you should, and you should just step away and come back later on. Okay. Okay, so one of the other albums that he's a part of, right after they've done Toto Four is Lionel Richie can't slow down, right? Yeah. And one of the songs is Running with the Night. They want him to play the solo. They're like, we want you to play the solo for the end. It's like the outro to the song. Last couple of minutes, just, you know, that's what we want you to do. He's like, okay. He goes, play it for me and I'll listen to it and see what I can do, right? 
but he just keeps on going like this for two solid minutes. The last two minutes of the song, he just keeps rocking. It gets better and better as the song goes along. And so he finishes and they're like, okay, great, thanks. He's like, wait a minute, what? No, I was just noodling around. What are we? I, I'm ready yeah. to go. And they're like, no, no, no. What you did is fine. That's good. Thanks. Wow. So what you hear on that album, his very first attempt. And it wasn't even an attempt. It was like, I'm playing around to see what I can hear before <laughs> I make my first attempt. And they're like, nope. What you did was fine. We're keeping it. That's awesome, man. Yeah. That's awesome. By the way, just to, to add on something about Hold the Line. Yeah. Such a great song. Yes. It peaked at number five, January 13th, 1979. Okay. And I was like, man, what, what songs are better than Hold the Line? Line, right? I mean, there's four better songs, right? I love it when you do this. This okay. is my favorite part of our podcast is when you say, what song beat this song What out? song is better than Hold the Line? Here right. you go. Ready? Number four. You Don't Bring Me Flowers. Barbara Streisand, Neil Diamond. Okay. Not better, but iconic song from sure. the 70s. Okay? Sure, yes, iconic. Yeah. Number three. My Life, Billy Joel. The theme from Bosom Buddies. Oh, I love that song. Huge I can't song, complain right? about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Number two. La Freak by Chic. Oh, wow. Okay. Huge, huge song in the 70s, right? Yeah. Now Rogers. Yeah. And number one, Too Much Heaven by the Bee Gees. Wow. Those are all hugely iconic songs from the 70s. Yeah. I mean, you can't, I mean, talk about defining moments in 1979 for sure. Right. Yeah, that's okay. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I think we're going to cover Too Much Heaven here in a few weeks, right? Yeah, right. We're going to do... Dive into the Bee Gees. Yeah, we're going to do Saturday Night Fever versus Dirty Dancing. Woo! Hey, everybody, be sure and right now tap your screen, the little three dots on your podcast player, and hit that follow button so that you're sure to catch that one. And oh, here's a little contest that we're going to do, all right? Yep. If you write a review, five-star review for us, and you use the word Kilimanjaro or Serengeti (laughs) in your review, you will be entered in a contest to win a custom engraved, surely you can't be serious, aluminum awesome Yeti cup. That's fantastic. And you get a shout out from us on the podcast. Absolutely. Absolutely. Fantastic. Serengeti or Kilimanjaro. <laughs> right. <laughs> Find a way to fit it into your review and, and we're gonna you're gonna be interested in, entered into that contest, all right? Yep. Okay. So also on that album, in addition to Hold the Line, they had I'll Supply the Love and Georgie Porgy, which had Cheryl Lynn on it. And it was a big, I mean, got nominated for a Grammy for Best New Artist. And then after they close that tour, they start work on their next album, which is titled Hydra. Right. It's released later that year. Comes out with a single, 99. Do you know this one? Yeah. Inspired by George Lucas's film, THX 1138. Fantastic. Yeah. Starring Robert Duvall, who we just covered in The Godfather. Exactly. So, Steve Lukather, by the way, hates that song. <laughs> I think it's great when people say that. Hydra was not a big commercial success. Still went gold, but compared to their original album, it kind of paled in comparison. And then in 1981, they come out with their third album, Turn Back. That's a big fizzle too. Yeah, it's so what they tried to do on this one was some arena rock. They pulled back on the keyboards, they heavied up their guitars, but this is just not them. This is not Toto. Yeah, just didn't work for them. So at this point, major successful album on their first album, and then two disappointments, and the record company comes to them and says, guys, if you don't give us some hits on this next album, we're going to drop you off the label. Yeah, pressure's on, right? Pressure is 
on. Now, I will say this, okay? This is interesting. Turn Back is a hit in Japan. Those Japanese people, yeah, they, they love... love and I, we're going to talk a little bit later on about Africa and how Africa became what it is again in the 21st century. I think Japan has to have something to do with it, but Toto is one of those bands. I mean, Toto's probably in, like, Beatles League as far as Japan is concerned. <laughs> By the way, before we get too far down the road, December 15, 1981, Bobby Kimball gets arrested for selling cocaine to an undercover police officer. Right. But he didn't really sell it to the police officer. He sold it to a couple of girls who sold it to a police officer. Yeah, or and gave they it fingered to him. Or something, yeah. It's kind of, and the details on this are weird. Yeah. The amount that he sold? Four ounces. Four ounces. That's 90 grams of That's cocaine. a lot as far as cocaine is concerned. It's not much for a can of Coke, but for a bag of Coke, it's a lot. <laughs> That's like uh, Al Pacino Scarface levels of cocaine. <laughs> Right. So pressure's on. They have to have maximum success. Big hits on album number four, which they decide to call Toto Four. So what they decide to do is go back to the formula that helped them succeed on their first album. They are going to do a highly polished, highly produced album where they utilize all kinds of outside musicians to give it a more full feel and as clean and awesome as it can be. It takes them months. They record during 1981 and 1982, and they get a bigger budget for this one so that they can bring these musicians in. Okay. Normally, when you're doing a recording, you had the band will have a 24 track recorder. Toto used three 24 track recorders at the same time. Uh, it's, it's cool that the record company still believed in them that much at that moment. So. Well, it's like we said, like not only did they do a lot of stuff before they became Toto, they did a lot of stuff while they were Toto. It's not as though Toto was their only job. They continued to be session musicians and appeared on all kinds of albums of other artists while they're releasing their own albums from 78 through. By the way, yeah. Lukather played on Olivia Newton-John's Physical. Uh-huh. And listen to this. Yeah. This this blew me away. The guys in Toto played on Quincy Jones' album called The Dude. The Dude. The Dude. El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. I didn't know Quincy <laughs> Jones. Oh, heck yeah, dude. I didn't Just, know. He- I mean, of course, I, I, I'm... Okay, so I will say this. I wanted to find out if Marty Page, I mean, just because keep in mind, all these guys are big band jazz guys. I wanted to see if Marty Page ever played with Jan Van Halen. Because Jan Van Halen, remember, was also a big band guy. Right. I just, Jan didn't appear to be the success, and I can't find anything that shows that they ever played together. It's cool to think about. What is interesting is that Joe Piccaro, the guy who said, hey, you should meet my son Jeff to David Page, was involved in all four of these albums. Yeah, he he, he arranges and does all kinds of stuff behind the scenes, yeah. Marty Page is involved in the first one, I think some of the others as well, and so it's really interesting to see how the dads have helped out. Okay, so they had a producer that they wanted to be the producer for Toto 4, but ultimately could not reach an agreement with him. Okay. And so what happened was they had been working with this engineer named Al Schmidt on some of the session albums that they had done just before Toto 4 is about to start recording. And so whenever that deal with the other producer, when it falls apart, they all say, well, what about Al? Let's let's have him engineer it and we'll just, we'll be the producers, but he can, he can engineer the whole thing. So he engineered primarily the entire album by himself. So let's just touch on a few things Toto 4. The interesting thing to me mm-hmm. is once they had recorded 
the majority of Toto 4. They're sitting there in the recording studio one day and these headphones go flying across the room, smashing into the wall. And they turn around and it's David Hungate. And they're like, dude, what's going on? He's like, I can't take any more of this crap. I quit. I'm out of here. See ya. So bizarre. They, they were totally taken back. Lukather's like, what? What are you talking about? We're about to have this the best album we've ever put out, and you're quitting? Well, it turns out he wanted to produce and compose and do some other stuff. He had already moved his family to Nashville, so he wanted to make his mark on this album, and then as soon as that had kind of come to a close, he quit. Okay, so that brings us to Toto 4. That brings us to the album of the year in 1983. Right. The make-or-break album for Toto, where they had to have hits, and hits they had. So come back next week and join us as we hit Toto 4 track by track.